This episode is brought to you by Happy Mess. Happy Mess? The kids' art place? Yeah, they do art classes and sensory play and after-school programs and in-school classes and birthday parties and camps. And adult events. Buy tickets to our next paint night or book your own for your next occasion or staff party. Check it out at www.happymess.net. What's www? World Wide Web. This episode is brought to you by ServiceMaster Sea to Sky. A home is more than just a house and an office is more than just a place to work. ServiceMaster is here to offer home and business services when you need them the most. ServiceMaster handles water, flood, fire, and reconstruction services. We take on jobs big and small. There's no project we haven't seen before. ServiceMaster, the complete customer experience. Call us at 604-938-0822 or on the web, smctosky.com. That's smctosky.com. ServiceMaster Sea to Sky, restoring peace of mind. This is the Sea to Sky podcast, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast, the newly revived Sea to Sky podcast, because we are uh, in the midst of an election season. I'm here with Stephen Fryer and Mr. John French, counselor re-elect John French. I like how you put Mr. in front of my name. Oh, yeah. That sounds, sounds very official. More like uh, makes me sound important or something. Maybe <laughs> a little bit. Don't let it get to your head. Now, well, you, you've been on our Where You At Buds podcast, and that was a friendly chat. Um, I think because this is a different forum and you're currently in office seeking re-election, we're going to be a little bit rougher with you. <laughs> what? You, why did you tell me this earlier? I can't preface this. Yeah, because, I mean, we already got your backstory. We know all about your history. All we right. know why you're running. I'm up for it. We need to get nitty-gritty, right? A little bit nitty-gritty? I think we still need to... Well, let's give him the one softball. Let's, let's give him the one softball. <laughs> why are you seeking re-election? Uh, because there's more work to be done. I, You know, this term got derailed by COVID-19. There's stuff that we wanted to accomplish, we being my six colleagues at council, you know, our strategic plan that we set out early in the term and some of the things that we had anticipated we would get done aren't complete. And I want I want to see them through. I want to get them across the finish line. And reason I got into this in the beginning was because I wanted to give back to the community that raised me and I'm not finished giving back. So what projects are we talking about here? What have you seen through? And you're like, yes, what do we still need to finish? The affordable housing society or the, the housing society councils before us did an excellent job of setting that up so we could, uh, to use a baseball analogy, hit it out of the park. Uh, and we did. So the, the society is up and running. There's an executive director, there's a board and they have units because we have worked with some developers who have committed to donating units that are not yet built, but soon will be to that society. So I'm thinking specifically when I talk about units that have been donated, the end of Finch, that project that this council approved with the four apartment buildings and some townhouses, right? So you know the project I'm talking about. The, that developer has committed two of the units in that project will be donated to the housing society. Uh, we, we'll see more of that because we will have more conversations with more developers to get more units like that. And then those units can be leveraged for the society to increase its holdings on its own, find ways to build its own buildings potentially. 
so a lot of this is modeled after what Whistler has done with its Whistler Housing Authority. And one of the things Whistler did successfully right out of the gate was to get units into the society. And I think we're replicating that. And we're now finding early success with that model. Every time we talk about the issues of Squamish, it's all a big quagmire. Where do you start first, right? Everyone talks about densification, but then everyone talks about affordability. Then everyone talks about, uh, you know, we can't live here. Then there's the parking. And it's like, okay, well, then where do you start? breaking that down so obviously with the housing with you is very important because i mean if we have people working here then you know we're, we're continuing on building our economy uh, you know people can work and then we have people staying you know what i mean it's it's one big mess and i guess where you guys have figured out is we start with housing and then deal with the rest or is this is just one part of a piece that you're yeah, still working on here totally one part of because another thing that i'm really proud of is where we've taken transit service to and and again this is in the context of two years of COVID-19 paralyzing us and setting everything back we've we've come out of it right into a transit strike I mean this is a perfect storm of transit disasters and despite that the current ridership in Squamish is strong I mean offering free service will do that but getting our core transit service to 15 minutes frequency we're, we're not there yet but that's what we're driving towards and that goes hand in hand with housing that is on the lower end of the market value right so you i think it's safe to assume that people who are living in that um, lower value housing are going to be more likely to rely on transit and if we don't have a robust transit system, uh, life gets really difficult for the folks who can't afford to own a vehicle, but can afford to own their own place in, in that lower level of residential value. So it absolutely goes hand in hand. And, and th this is another part of our strategic planning that uh, is incomplete for me and regional transit also puts its hand into that. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. I mean, you're building on 15-minute intervals here in Squamish, but what about those who want to go to Whistler or to Vancouver? I mean, it's still just the Squamish connector, correct? There's, I mean, there's no actual transit. Any development in that? Is this still within the mayor's discussion, or is this like, okay, we're all in agreement, we just need the province to be on this? The province is such a key part of the whole scenario. The provincial government is has made it clear they're not just going to throw money at a regional transit system in Squamish. And I'm really encouraged by one of the candidates in West Vancouver, Mark Sager, uh, running for mayor, who is a previous West Van mayor from years past. Part of his campaign is to expand the blue bus service from West Van to Squamish. So I reached out to him as soon as I saw that and said, Mark, after the election, when we're both elected, <laughs> let's chat. And I, within like an hour, I got a note back from him saying, yep, putting it in my calendar. So the, one of the things the provincial government has said to Squamish and the rest of the region about regional transit is get creative and come with a solution. And we were like, come on, it's funding. That's that's it. Like, we just have to figure out how to pay for it. And this notion of come back with something creative, I don't know if the province had some idea in its head of what that creative thing would be, but Mark Sager, thank you. This might be the creative thing the provincial government 
was thinking of but didn't directly think of because it took Mark Sager to enter the conversation to bring us the idea. So this is another motivator for me is ideas like that. I want to be a part of the next four years of making regional transit happen along with all the other things that are undone. You have a mayoral candidate in West Vancouver made that a part of his platform at the the very least. I'm just wondering how much teeth that actually has from the constituents within West Vancouver. That's a big thing, right? It's yeah. one of those big kind of, oh, let's watch how this goes, <laughs> right? You are right, John. It's it's not just here locally in Squamish, but to our neighbors, both north and south. Um, talked a little bit about the government and the provincials and federal levels of government. You know, our lobby to those senior levels of government. Do you think we've been doing a good enough job? Yes. Over the past four years, where could you make strides? <laughs> yeah, we have. And lobbying, man, that is so difficult to assess because it's usually done quietly behind the scenes. You know, like we don't tend to post on Facebook about, hey, I just lobbied the minister of whatever for funding for whatever. Because the minister of whatever doesn't want to see on Facebook that the meeting you just had is now public and everybody knows. So lobbying is super important. We've done a lot of it. And Mayor Karen Elliott on her way out, I want recognition for her and her efforts. I think she's done an extremely good job for Squamish in that lobbying world. You know, I'm often hearing from her I had a meeting with this minister, that minister, we talked about this, we talked about that, we're looking good on this thing. Counselors, my experience, don't necessarily tend to get as deep into it, mostly a product of our mayor is a full-time mayor, our counselors are part-time, so there's way more opportunity for the mayor to do that. But really, when we talk about lobbying, you want to talk about effectiveness. And Squamish has successfully landed an $11 million grant for Brennan Park to upgrade energy efficiency, which means we're going to lower our operating costs for Brennan Park, which gets us one step closer to all the other upgrades, the sexy upgrades that everybody wants. Uh, you know, the pool, the ice rink, the wellness center. And uh, actually, let me reverse that order. The splash park, because <laughs> there's a lot of push for that pool, ice arena and and the wellness center. That's just the sexy money. There's also the dike money and the money from other levels of government that we don't necessarily hear so much about because it's not as interesting or uh, there's less interest than Brennan Park. Yeah, and I, I would agree, John. You know we've always agreed on this, that people want to loathe consultants. Hundreds of thousands of dollars on consultants. Why are we doing this consulting? But it really sets up those documents yes. for the District of Squamish to su- not just go after, but to successfully win and be awarded these grants. We often hear people say, yet another study that's going to collect dust on a shelf. That does sometimes happen. However... The consultants that I've had experience with in these last four years, the people that we've worked with, are doing expert work that the District of Squamish staff just doesn't have. We hire consultants because of their expertise. They have got knowledge, skills, talents that our staff doesn't and can produce information reports, strategies that are are just next level from, from our staff. So those consultant reports are super important and 
I, I wish that people would better appreciate the, the work of our consultants. And I have to, I'm, I'm guilty of it. You know, when I was a reporter, I sometimes railed against expensive consultant reports. In hindsight, maybe I was a, a little too reactive. Well, you're feeling the way everybody else is feeling. That's it. Yes. I mean, we're looking at, we, you know, we're talking about our, our property taxes Increasing, and we're talking about how this town in particular relies more on the the property tax pool than the average BC town. We're about sixty residential here. property tax. Yeah, residential property yeah. tax. So we're about sixty percent here, whereas everywhere else the average is around forty eight. Optically, when you guys are going out doing this and that and the other thing, everyone's thinking like, well, okay, that's is that where my property taxes are going? Really? Right? How about some action? Like, you know, we're cramming all these buildings downtown. And I have nowhere to park. And that you're going to spend more money on researching. There's obviously too many buildings and nowhere to park, you know? Parking. (laughs) Oh, the parking conversation. I knew we would land on parking. Of course. It's 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 a big issue. Are we talking about parking now? Yeah. Parkade. Yes or no. No, no parkade. (laughs) And here's why. The people who are pushing for a parkade are the folks who want everybody else to use the parkade so that when they go to the post office downtown to get their mail, there's a spot open for them right out in front of the post office. They're not going to use the parkade. So I, I, I root, oh, I'm going to get in such hot water yeah, you are. with what I'm about to say. Yeah, you are. I can, I can sense where you're going. When, when I go downtown, I, I live in the Garibaldi Estates. I, I park at the Chieftain Center Mall and I do whatever I need to do there. And then I branch out and I take care of everything else and I go back, my truck's still there, and there's lots of parking, always, well, except around Christmas time. So, you know, that's that's me. That's my parking experience. Uh, and then there are other people who talk to me about their experiences. Now, I can never find a spot. I circle around downtown for 10 minutes, and I still can't find a spot. Well, that's, think- that's your experience, and I don't really understand how it's so difficult to find a spot. Well, it's not I think the argument for a parkade is mainly for the staff who work downtown. They have a place to park mainly, so they're not plugging up spots for other people. I mean, the big issue is like, for example, me standing outside of my doctor's office and at the park, and she comes out to stop the bylaw officer from giving her a ticket because she had, she's been parked there longer than two hours because she has nowhere else to park and she's on call at the hospital. Yeah. So, I mean, she has to park near the clinic and, and the fact that she can't park anywhere else and there's two hour limits. She's a doctor about to go to the hospital. Like, she needs to go to the hospital. She needs to have access to her vehicle. And where is the owner of that building? The, whoever well, the, owns- the parking in the back is all taken up by staff. So if, if the staff, like the, 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 the front desk nurse and all the other nurses have a place to put their vehicle, she can put her vehicle in the back where she has access to it and get to the hospital. Yep. So this is, this is where the argument is for having a parkade, not necessarily for everyone to use it for everybody to use, but for staff or for people who work downtown, have a place to put their vehicle so they're not interrupting everybody else. And then there are the other tentacles of increased frequency of our transit service, which makes it easier for people who live outside of the downtown to use the transit service to get to their job downtown so they don't have to bring a car that then gets parked at do the you, clinic. Do you take a bus to council? I do. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I, I have, I do, and I will, and I ride my bike. So this is where I was going next. Active transportation, protected bike lanes, pedestrian sidewalks, all of those elements work together to ensure that people have viable and desirable options 
that are not single passenger vehicle. And we're not there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we're not there. This is another one of the undone things that uh, I want to be a part of over the next four years to get us there. So that leads us to also densification downtown. Do you think we've been going a little heavy on the densification or we're at the right speed or? Right, right <laughs> speed. And I'm not frightened by the height of the buildings that have been approved. Yeah, they're tall. I get it. Yeah, they they impact the views downtown. Uh, they're also supplying housing that's desperately needed because it goes hand in hand gets me thinking about the emergency access road that's been closed. Thank you, CN, for dredging up a 20 year old report that indicated apparently the district was obligated to put gates on that road. Um, we need to get a bridge across the Malcolm Blind Channel that links Laurelwood to the downtown as soon as possible. And that that's a conversation that um, I'm pushing and will push in, in the next term. Is that another funding issue? Why has it not been done yet? Uh, definitely. Is that another province thing or is that more of a municipal thing? I don't believe the province has got any barriers in that scenario. So one of the things I'd like to see for downtown is a neighborhood plan created that talks about what is the ideal population downtown? What's the ideal population density downtown? When do we have to start talking about cutting off new projects downtown? So there's already a lot of units on the books that haven't been built, but will be built. So we need to determine once we have those built, how many more can we comfortably carry downtown? And these are questions that need to be looked at by people who are in the business of doing that research and are experts in population densities. Because let's face it, that area is restricted. Malcolm Blind Channel, railroad tracks, Squamish Estuary. You can only fit so many people in there. How many? I don't know. I'd like to know that so that we can uh, plan for when we get to that number. Speaking of planning, we know with respect to the environment, scientists will say we're facing a global warming issue. We're going to continually face these, this increased global warming. And they're they're starting to see now in, in major urban centers how the planning department identification may or may not have been done correctly. Do you feel you're not worried about the height of these buildings? Do you feel there's enough green space in that downtown to deal with such topics as global warming and, and major urban centers? Yes, I do. And part of my thinking around that is the estuary being right next door. I mean, that is amazing natural green space. Stan Clark Park, um, where the OCM Pavilion is. Yeah, I think we have an appropriate amount of um, open and green space downtown. And one of the things that this council has talked about a fair amount around our council table is rooftop access and amenities. Uh, more and more developers are seeing the the benefit and value of having rooftops that are accessible to the residents that are, are living in that building. And when there is act, rooftop activity, uh, there's also room for things like rooftop gardening, uh, green roofs for the areas that uh, like uh, are true roofs. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to um, create open parkish space 
at the tops of these new buildings downtown. In the uh, waterfront development, I mean, how far away are we with that? And there's enough green space when we develop the waterfront. I think the waterfront's been largely ignored, I think, in the conversation in the last few years because, I mean, we've been, been, there was lots of talk of it. We know it's happening, but I don't think anyone knows exactly where we're sitting at with the waterfront. Right. It's because the waterfront development folks have just been head down, getting her done. I'm super excited for when that beach opens up, the Spuckless Feather Park. Um, I think I got that name right. It's it's brand new and I'm getting, getting used to. <laughs> uh, but when that opens up to the public, um, that's going to be an amazing space. I mean, you think of what it was before it got closed off so that the work could be done. I mean, it was pretty rough and tumble with all kinds of industrial uh, legacy there, but people loved it. Um, You know, the sandy beach, when that park opens, uh, people are going to double love um, because it's it's bigger and it's nicer and it's more pleasant. I, I've been keeping an eye on what the uh, oceanfront folks have been up to, and and I'm happy with their progress, with where they're at, and uh, I think we'll we'll be hearing more uh, about what that project is up to after the beach and the park open, because people will be down there and it'll be more of a conversation. Yeah, because, I mean, it's also a densification question. It kind of relates to what we're talking about because now we're building and we're putting more people down there and it puts more onus on, on the district to create that second access. And and we want the green space, obviously. So when those parks open up, that, that'd be great. What's the timeline? Do you think that they give you a timeline when they're going to open things up there? Or I don't recall off the top of my head, but one of the things to note about that project is it dates back so far. Yeah. Like it, it's been kicking around for a long time. And this is how big projects like that work. You know, um, there was a lot of planning in the early stages, consultation, feedback, back to the drawing board, and the community landed on a vision and we're, we're, we're moving ahead. So this council has approved a building called Residential One and we approved a new, a, a second building. We also approved a commercial space and showroom uh what do you call those demo Mm -hmm. that will have uh, a a restaurant they've proposed some kind of brew pub so quite certain three buildings have been approved down there um, by this council and we'll start to see work on those three buildings in the next little bit so uh, let's continue on a little bit with the densification question with uh, essentially what was going on in Garibaldi States where you live. There was that whole thing about developers coming in there, buying up some land and wanting to sort of rezone the whole thing. Where do you stand on that? If we don't plan, developers will plan for us. And that's what neighborhood planning is all about. So the Garibaldi Estates neighborhood plan is is currently underway. We're, we're in process. Um, it started. It got off to a bit of a controversial start. We did a minor reset on the process and staff is, is the district Squamish staff are currently uh, compiling, analyzing what's been collected so far in the way of feedback. And they're working on some concept plans, which will come to the next council. This is really important. This council got that ball rolling. We intended to have the plan complete before the end of our term. It's not working out that way. COVID, little change in the process, whole bunch of factors dragging that process out. So I am expecting and will support increased density for the Garibaldi Estates area. The key, though, is where do we put that density? 
And this is one of the things I want to see out of this plan is a clear vision for uh, we're going to increase the density here. We're going to maintain current density here. This is what that planning process is all about so that developers see that plan and go, oh, okay, I won't even bother with this little part of the neighborhood because the plan says we're, we're going to leave that as is. I'll focus on over here because that's where the plan says we want to increase the density. And so very specifically, the residential area bordering the current commercial. So um, Garibaldi Village, the grocery store, Chevron, over to Spectacle, you know, anything that sort of touches those properties, I'm pretty comfortable with an increase in density in those areas because of their proximity to the commercial areas. So you, come on, yeah, this is where you're supposed to ask me about the VLA lands. No, well, right? I mean, like, we we've heard isn't... we've heard all about the VA lands. It's just you're the first one to come to us and say, yeah, I'm 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 pro density in the area. Everybody else we've talked to is like, yeah, we don't want it. We're not going to touch See, it. So this is this is why I'm sort of like, wow, all right. And that's all political. I think everybody's afraid of VLA backlash, and I'm not. <laughs> I'm not afraid because here's why. I have had a lot of conversations with the folks who live in some of those properties. I toured uh, one of the residents' um, backyard with all the other candidates a few days ago just to get a real understanding of how much food is being produced in some of those backyards. And it's, it's impressive. And I'm envisioning a plan that ultimately preserves light into those backyards and allows those who are in the VLA who want to carry on with their current scenario to do exactly that. And we currently allow carriage houses, accessory dwelling units on those properties. I absolutely want to see that continuing because we have families right now living on those properties who have teens who very well could struggle to find their own housing in our community because it's so expensive. They work with mom and dad to build an ADU in their large lot and bang, generational living. You know, my friends from India have been doing this for a long time. They brought that culture here. And when I was a kid, we looked down our nose at, at how they lived. And now I'm like, wow, they had something there. And there's a lot to learn from that generational living situation. And I support that type of uh, scenario for, for the VLA lands. And I'm also supportive of pulling back the VLA um, legislation. It's outdated. It's old. It needs to be revised. So the key with that is what do we revise it with? And I'm supportive of a revision that allows the VLA lands to continue operating similar to, to what they are currently living under. I understand the backlash that comes with the VLA lands. Quite honestly, they're very passionate about it, and, mm -hmm. and, and rightfully so. It's more of the worry that, you know, developers come in and you say they're only going to take a little part here and only a little part there, but you know how developers work. It's just they're going to keep encroaching, and people are worried that the value of their properties will drop. Yeah, and that whole notion of you're going to devalue my property... Show me a 20-year graph of any property in Squamish where the value has gone down. You can't. We have been on a 20-year property value increase trajectory. I don't buy that argument. We have to be smart about it. Here's not smart. 
we, we somehow end up with a neighborhood plan scenario that allows two six-story towers to be built right in the middle of the VLA lands. That would be shocking for everybody in the VLA lands. That is a massive, drastic change. I guarantee you that is not going to happen. Densification doesn't work like that. But I think at the end of the day, John, people are looking to the downtown core. They see what's happening there and they say, Mm -hmm. well, if it happened there, then what's to stop it from happening here? Yeah. A legitimate fear, a legitimate concern. You know, you yourself have said you were not afraid. You are not scared by the height of those buildings down there. So what what is going to stop the the next council, the council after that from saying, yeah, we allowed it. Now we've started it. The ball is now rolling. And like Marcus said, developers are all about. About ROI, and it's never enough. You know this as well as I do. It's never enough. They will go higher, they will go wider, they will go deeper, they will go right to the lines as they can. But that is the legitimate fear by those landowners in the VLA. This is why the creation of a neighborhood plan is so important. Because again, if the district of Squamish doesn't do the planning, the developers were will good, solid, clear neighborhood plan sends the message to the developers. You can't build towers here. You can't over here. You talk about neighborhood planning. And we've heard about in the last campaigning and when the new council was formed about neighborhood nodes. And and I'm only speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Brackendale, you would suggest that there are two areas that, that would be ripe for creating these nodes. One being the Brackendale General Store location, the other being the Eagle Run Store location. There has been development planning around both of those when both of them could be used as these neighborhood nodes or these community areas. And like you say, developers are going to plan for us if we don't plan for them. Where are we at? We're talking about Garibaldi not going to get finished, and this has been one of the relatively new ones and one that that is obviously a hot-button issue because of the VLA and because of the backlash. We have a lot of neighborhoods that could have some consultation from the, the constituents, from the residents of those areas, and we could be down the garden path here. The official community plan calls for the creation of neighborhood plans all throughout the community and there there's a specific list in the OCP and I don't recall the exact order but um you know Garibaldi Highlands is on there and I think that neighborhood is oh way overdue for a neighborhood plan um Brackendale is also on the list I think it's below Garibaldi Highlands and and Valleycliff downtown is not actually mentioned on that list uh, so you know I might, might have some challenges uh, convincing my council colleagues to somehow get a downtown neighborhood plan um, on the agenda. They take time. Uh, the Garibaldi or the Loggers East neighborhood plan that we put together, um, we were anticipating that would take a year and it was longer than that. Our strategic plan called for us to create two neighborhood plans within our term and we completed one. We're, we're on the way with the second. We need to reevaluate how long these things take and um, how we do them because there's no such thing as pounding them out one per year and that if for sure Garibaldi Highlands Brackendale and Valleycliff we're not going to get neighborhood plans created for those three neighborhoods in one year we're talking big neighborhoods with issues oh yeah let's talk about the Garibaldi Highlands but there's issues Uh, Chima Chima lands (laughs) do we have to yeah I I want I want Pia I want Pia down to uh, what's the road down there Tantalus I want want that access linking in without yeah I I would love I would love that access and I would love to alleviate some of the traffic coming down uh, the boulevard especially you know when schools in and out and people just bombing down there I would like to have a different access so 
you know, Chima's promised that, and uh, obviously there's been some issues with with you know the development there. How how do you see that going in the next four years? <laughs> it, it is totally going to depend on who the seven people are in those seats. Um, me, Armin Herford, and Eric Anderson were were fairly clear that we wanted district lot 509 510 brought inside the growth management boundary um we tried twice in the term and both times um the other four counselors said no they they didn't feel it's time so i suspect that fairly early in this next term we'll get a clear indication of how many counselors are supportive of 509 510 coming inside the growth management boundary and if it's four or more then I, I we start that conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just getting absolutely no, stumped here. I know because there's and no you nuance. Just keep chucking, you're there's chucking no heaters on the inside of the plate. I think John I think I think as John is overtired. John is overtired. He's been over explaining. I think with oh. so many people that for us he's just like that's how it's going to go. Like it or not. Next question. <laughs> Move on. Let, Move on, gentlemen. Let me. T- let me take that to some of the things I'm hearing out there from some of the people that are hoping for the, the jobs. Last election, I didn't promise anything. And I'm not promising anything again this time around. I'm committing to what's important to me and what's important to the people I talk to and what they want for our community. I'll push for those things. I'll, I'll use my powers of persuasion. I'll debate. I'll bring logic. You know, I'm going to do all the things that counselors are supposed to do, but I'm nervous about some of the things we're hearing out there about what candidates think (laughs) they can do. Because, you know, the reality, money is always the reality maker. Like, are we going to have in the next four years at Brennan Park a splash park, a wellness center, a second ice rink, and a second pool. No, we are not. And if anybody out there hearing this is like, oh, well, he's just not pushing hard enough. Money realities. I like we could beg every developer to give us the maximum community contributions and beyond. And we still wouldn't have enough money to do those four huge projects. So people don't believe those who are telling you that you're going to get a brand new shiny Bren Park with all the bells and whistles in four years because it, the reality is it's not going to happen. Well, when you ran the first time, you were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You were all about like, yeah, we could do all this thing. The, the, the world's our oyster, right? So you've been in the trenches for four years. And uh, so I, I guess... <laughs> what advice then would you have for those bright eyed bushy tail ones? It's like, don't overpromise. Are you just seeing a lot of overpromising? And that's just not, I guess, the mm. fiscal reality. Do your homework. You know, um, it's a little frustrating for me these last couple of weeks to be sitting in Municipal Hall looking out into the gallery. Nobody there. Stephen Fryer, did you go to some council meetings when you were a candidate to sort of get an idea of how it works and what happens? Of course I did. Yeah. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. To get in and get an understanding and a get feel for wet, right? yeah, yeah. What, it, what it was like. And and quite honestly, to to, to have a cup of coffee with Terrell Patterson, that was, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, I've seen Lauren Greenlaw in those chairs a couple times. Good for her. I've, I've seen Rajan Hands a couple times. You know, maybe there are others, but I, I don't think so. Well, and, and we, we've, we've spoken with others about this, John. The clear understanding that there's seven people in council chambers. You need four. And sometimes you need four multiple times. Yeah. 
and you may be presented with information that makes you think twice. You can change your mind. It's it's not set because you pass first reading. And this no. is second. Well, that's a whole different story. I love what you're pointing to here because it, it's gonna get me off the hook <laughs> on on some big things. I am truly concerned about climate change and what we saw on the Coquihalla, the impacts, Merritt and Princeton, what's currently happening on the east coast of Canada. These are causing me to pause and reevaluate some of the things right here at home, particularly around building infrastructure, water, sewer, power outside of what we currently have in Squamish. Climate change is making me reassess everything. And that's why I asked the the question with respect to the planning. Are we planning prudently enough to take into consideration those environmental changes? We are. Because it's true. It's real. You can say it's not, but it is. And and so we have tools like DPAs, Development Permit Areas. Uh, that that talk about um, reinforcing structures that are in floodplains to to make sure that if there is a flood, they're going to survive. You know, they've got a good, strong bunker on floor number one. DPA regarding forest fires, forest fire prevention. You know, these these are all tools that are really important that are all looking forward to climate impacts. One of the lenses that was used in creating this stuff that we've been working on over the last four years all goes through a climate lens. Which brings us to a really good one. And if anybody's following Mr. John French's social media, you'll see that you posted a little bit with respect to the debris flow hazard study. Where are we at with that? What what does that look like right now? So there are engineering experts who are refining a design for that barrier. So I posted a current image. Uh, it's very high level. It's very preliminary. So we're we're waiting on more information, uh, more detail. For those who are not in the know, what what are we talking about here by barrier? Okay, if you you sort of think of Daisy Lake Dam, that's designed to hold back water so that we can get a consistent flow of of water into a pipe to generate electricity. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been by Daisy Lake Dam, you know what that looks like. So a structure larger than that on the Chikai in the sort of between Cat Lake and Alice Lake Provincial Park, a structure something like the Daisy Lake Dam, but is open in the middle so that if there is a massive debris flow coming off of the Garibaldi, you know, below Atwell Peak, Dalton Dome, that sediment, trees, mud rock would get stuck behind this barrier instead of flowing right down into Brackendale and wiping out the airports and houses and you know all of the human construct on the lower part of the Chikai into the Chequemus and then into the the Squamish River so um, it's it's a mitigation measure to it's to protect human lives uh, to protect structures and and it's very expensive uh, and then sounds expensive in on top of being expensive to build and create and engineer and design. If in our lifetime there is a significant debris flow and there's a lot of stuff that gets trapped behind this thing and doesn't make it down into Brackendale and take out homes and, and take lives. The design of these things is all of that that gets trapped behind has to be removed. Very expensive. Who pays for it? So these are some of the 
things that we're working out, uh, some of the details that are being worked out around that barrier. This was planned. And still in planning. In planning, mostly in part because there is a desire to develop the land essentially north of Depot Road through to what is now currently our, our dump. And and it, so it's really Ross Road. Yeah. Um, for those who've been around for a long time, you you'll recall there was a little um, streetscape on the sort of northern end of Ross Road where a trailer park was going to be built. I mean, nature has since reclaimed it, but if you go back there now, you still see evidence of the road system that. So uh, all of that, if if you're traveling up Ross Road from Depot on the right-hand side and then up towards the church that that is the Squamish nation is heavily involved in in that and there's a desire to develop it and it's been deemed um uh, too too risky because of this debris flow possibility so that debris barrier is very much connected to a desire to develop that upper Ross Road area which has a spin-off benefit for everybody else that would be protected by this barrier, which would include the airport and folks who are living in in Chikai uh, Reserve, that whole area. So let's change gears a little bit. We keep talking about densification and development. Let's talk about having to pay less taxes. So how about we talk about diversifying the economy? Well, hold yeah. on here. I he, want to talk about it. He said he didn't promise anything last election, but I'm pretty sure there was a promise of not raising taxes during his term. It wasn't, wasn't, was there something about that? You know, I, yeah, absolutely. I talked a lot. Uh, I, in fact, here this, this was one of the things I said many times. Squamish, you pay too much taxes. Longtime residents, you've paid your taxes. And and I still believe that. I mean, people who pioneered this town are seeing their taxes increase dramatically from when they first came here. I would like to say I pushed my council colleagues in the budget discussions to keep the budget increases as reasonable as possible. And and I think we achieved that. It's getting harder and harder. So this current budget that we're working off, we have... RCMP and firefighter commitments that are significant. We're increasing our firefighter force and those guys are expensive. We pay them good money to be well-trained, to have great skills and to know what to do when but also our staff houses are now fire. too. I mean, it's, it's not just volunteer firefighters with, you know, one or two um, so it's, Regulars. it's yeah. a paid on call service. And when we switched from the volunteer force to paid on call, uh, it actually had very little financial impact because it's simply t- so under the volunteer model, every time the firefighter force responded to an incident, the district of Squamish paid the volunteer force a sum of money. And then they collectively as a group decided what to do with those funds and they did things like group travel which is great for team building and you know blown off steam because these guys have very stressful work um they had season tickets to the canucks you know four of them four seasons tickets so they enjoyed canuck games on their downtime now in moving over to the paid on call that money is now being paid to the individuals instead of to the collective and they individually decide what they're going to do with their compensation so so the paid on call move hasn't had a significant impact 
in increasing firefighter costs. It's our agreement with the unionized firefighters where we've made a commitment to increase the size of our force dramatically over the next bunch of years. And then the RCMP situation, they unionized. We had no control over that. Luckily, Squamish was setting aside money for when this inevitably happened. So Squamish has a fund to help offset those RCMP costs in the short term. But, you know, let's face it, we will always have those increased numbers of RCMP members. So it's an ongoing continuing cost. And this current budget, there's so little room for other stuff because of our commitment to firefighting and policing. We're working with the same budget and come next election or is there going to be more wiggle room in the next four years? Yeah, there's a little bit more. I believe there's a little more wiggle room in the following budget. So the 2024 budget, because there's not as heavy a pressure on the firefighting and RCMP. You can build an extra ice rink with that. (laughs) No, not quite. (laughs) I wish. So yeah, let's get back to diversifying the economy then. I mean, you have you created the EDC, the Economic Development Committee. Have we seen any movement in bringing in industry into town? Is there still any barriers that still need to be broken down for industry to move here? There's a lot of interest to have industry come here. And most of it revolves around our natural assets. Industrial operators in the city who can't find land down there because it's so scarce for increasing the size of their operations. They're looking here. And one of the reasons they're looking here is because they're excited by their employees having access to our mountain biking, our kite sailing, our climbing, our golfing, our hiking, all of the things that we all know are in such abundance here. So I'm pretty optimistic for our prospects in attracting some industry players who can be bigger contributors to our tax base than poor old Squamish terminals who who we lean on so heavily and well, yeah, there's, them, there's terminals and walmart and then hopefully lng right well and so there are some significant industrial operators in the bc rail yards they're they're small compared to squamish terminals but you can't dismiss their contribution to our community and i see a lot of potential in the bc rail yards for getting a few more industrial operations in there to bring us some of those strong industrial taxes. And then there's also potential in that sort of landfill airport area. And this is a little bit down the road because we need to sort out the debris risk. But we have potential to bring industrial operators into those lands when we get to a point where we can develop those lands for industrial uses. (laughs) <laughs> Another one of those hot button subjects, John. Geez, it just don't seem to go away. Garibaldi at Squamish. Where are we landing on that right now? I said earlier, climate change has got me thinking everything. Garibaldi at Squamish is one of them. I have been saying for a long time, I like the idea. I want to see it happen. Wolfgang Richter, love that guy. The the visionary that has gotten us to, to where we are in the modern uh, Garibaldi at Squamish situation. And I'm I'm looking carefully at it. I want to see what they bring next in the way of their own planning, their own vision, and then I'm going to apply it big time to the climate lens. Yeah, and 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 so what? See where I land. What of that? You know, speaking to that climate lens, what is your concern? Like, what's the biggest concern for you? New infrastructure in Greenfield. Uh, this is as plain as that. In 2024, 2025. Do we really want to put 
a whole new town, a whole new resort up that high in that climate zone. I, I, I don't know now. 10 years ago, this was not even a thought for me, but it is now. There's a lot of talk with respect to the snow line and snow level climate change that that's going to reduce further and further and further and makes it more and more look like simply a land grab by by another developer. So, yeah. It also comes down to Squamish Nation having their issues as well. I mean, Squamish Nation, I think, is they're worried about the water. They're worried about a lot of things. Um, I don't honestly think we can do anything until Squamish Nation says, we have the A-OK here. We are okay environmentally. We are okay how it's going to affect our lands. We're okay with everything that respect we're doing. And then it will come to everybody else, whether we want to extend our borders. But I think I think the made players, is if it's on their land, they need to be happy with it 100%, I think, before we can even consider it. Squamish Nation is very involved in the whole thing. So I am confident that the Squamish Nation is on top of that project and they will make their views on it very well known when they're ready to make their next move regarding that, that project. Speaking to the Squamish Nation, John, it's been a long time since District of Squamish and the Squamish Nation has had an intergovernmental court. I think we go back all the way to... Greg Gardner era. Yeah, way back. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about reconciliation, uh, rightfully so. Why have we not been able to get this done over... And it's not just your term over this past term because it goes far beyond your term. Successive councils have, um, I believe increasingly improved relations between the District of Squamish and the Squamish Nations to the point now where we meet monthly with the Squamish Nation. There, every month, there is a meeting of political and staff, both the District of Squamish and the Squamish Nation. We tell our neighbors about that. West Van, you know, like others who are interacting with the Squamish Nation. And they're like, well, wait a second, back up the truck. You meet with them monthly? So we have a relationship, the District of Squamish, that not all of our neighbors in the territory enjoy. And I agree with you, Stephen. There's there's still much for us to do in the way of accords and agreements as we better serve the reserves. And I just, I hate that word, but that's what we call them with water and sewer. And I think that there's a lot of room for more cooperation around those, those services and figuring out um, ways to work cooperatively to make sure that um, Squamish Nation members living on Squamish Nation reserves are getting the services that are equal and equitable to what district of Squamish residents are getting. And one of the reasons I think maybe we haven't seen a lot of formal work on that is we've been making it work with what we have. And I think that the Squamish nation has been comfortable with that because we've been making it work. Uh, And then there's just taking it to the next level by formalizing what I think we currently have informally and then improving through that formalization. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of ensuring that from a district's perspective and from the Squamish Nation's perspective, that the expectations are clear from both parties, that it it is formalized. And we have a District of Squamish staff that is really committed to reconciliation and all the benefits that 
come with reconciliation, working closely with the Squamish Nation. And it's my hope that the next council will carry on the commitment that this council has had to that whole notion. Let, let me point really quickly to a project that uh, Councillor Herford and I were involved with early in the term, um, the Siachem um, dike project, the Eagle Viewing Area. We're looking at a significant realignment of the dike in that area to reclaim reserve land that's basically river right now. That's a really exciting project that has long-term reconciliation benefits that I think will benefit the, the whole community. So I'm just, I, I'm optimistic that the current energy that we have around all of that is going to carry through with, with the, the next term. And I'm hearing from the candidates that my sense is they have shared values, um, all of the candidates on this front. There's also a need for like a cultural center, like a cultural art hub where we have a second stage, not just Eagle Eye Theater. Mm -hmm. We have actually a dedicated center for performing arts and for artists. And I mean, is that something, is that still a wish list? Is that still a want and not a need? Um, Because we do have a very strong art community here. Uh, I think like per capita, we have more artists here than I think anywhere else in the province. Uh, We have like 16,000 art centers or dance centers. Um, We have so many, like I think everyone's kid goes to dance. So a new one just opened like a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Across from my place. Yeah. Is there a way so we can foster that some more? Is there a plan to sort of create something or we still have to wait a little longer for that? So the arts heritage and culture study was created, endorsed by council. Uh, It's a strong document. It sets out a vision. Councillor Eric Anderson will argue it's not strong enough on what you've just described because it doesn't give us a clear timeline and path to a larger theater. So the tentless fire hall that we're going to start building here, look for the current fire hall to come down in weeks. It's going to happen soon. We're rebuilding that fire hall uh, as basically a bunker so that once it's complete, it's going to have solar panels on on the roof. And then the long term vision is that eventually something will be built above that fire hall. We've tossed around. It could be affordable housing. It could be a theater. It could be some kind of cultural hub center. So there's nothing rock solid about that. But this is one, uh, an, an example of how we are thinking ahead to how do we get ourselves a larger theater it, to be determined. And yeah, I, there are so many people in our community who, who feel the same as you, Marcus, that we're, we're a little behind schedule on this one. So I think we've been a little rough with you. Uh, I, think, I think we're being a little bit more rough with you, I think, than some of the other candidates. And really? I think it's because it's like in the evening time and we were just hammering away interview after interview. And uh, I, so I'll give you your, your I'll give you two minutes or I'll give, 30 seconds to give me your spiel, your platform, what message you want to get out there. Okay. I want to share what I think I've really brought these last four years. And it's community. It's a sense of calm. I think sometimes in the council chambers and unity. This council has been so respectful and we have been effective in so many ways that we don't get credit for. When I think back to previous councils and the infighting and the personalities, we just don't have this with this council. And I really see me (laughs) as integral to that. I I feel like (laughs) 
that's a tall order. This is what one of the things that I think I bring to this community is my sense, my, my history, my knowledge and a reasoned vision for the future that unites people, brings people together. We're suffering through a lot of division right now. Squamish voices. Come on, give me a break. That's not me. I want to bring us together. And I feel over these four years, I have done that and I want to continue. All that being said, if somebody wants to dive deeper into Mr. John French and his campaign and and all of these platforms, these ideas, and there's a lot of them because uh, I follow, uh, <laughs> where do they find you? Johnfrench.ca is my website. Um, there's there's great info there. You can certainly get a sense for who I am, how I operate, and what my visions are through that website. Uh, John SQ French on Twitter and uh, um Instagram, the Instagram. Uh, uh, also, I have two Facebook pages, uh, my, my reelect page and my own personal gets a little messy because Facebook is awkward. So I'm posting things to all four of those places. Plus LinkedIn. I'm putting some of my um, reelection stuff on LinkedIn for those that are there. But here's the thing. Call me 604-815-7318. My phone number. My personal cell phone number has been on my District of Squamish bio page from day one. All the other counselors have 8925217, which is the front desk of Municipal Hall. I get calls from constituents that nobody else gets because they go to that page and they look, oh, all these numbers are the same except for this guy. I'm going to call him. You're just a glutton for punishment then. Call me. I want to talk. <laughs> I, I, so all of that social media stuff is great and I reach the masses, but where's the real value? It's when people call me and say, hey, what do you think about this? And if you get my voicemail, leave me a voicemail message. I'll call you back. You're important to me. Those calls are important to me. I'll call you back. Well, Mr. John French, you answered the call of See the Sky podcast. (laughs) And we want to thank you for coming out tonight, sharing your ideas, sharing your vision. And and thank you for the last four years, regardless. And uh, best of luck. (laughs) Best of luck on this upcoming campaign. I know the next two weeks are going to be really busy for you. So thank you again for joining us here on the Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been my pleasure. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on 